Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah Jacobs, it's been two weeks. Welcome back to the show. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, we I'm, missed you there. I missed doing it. <laughs> yeah, we had some good conversations. Yeah. You definitely did. Caitlin Edwards from our office and Jim Richardson from Na- National Geographic did a fantastic job, but you're the OG. Aww. So happy to have you back. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. About a month ago, I got a text from David Buteau, the freelance photographer out of now Los Angeles, uh, because he was in town in New York City and wanted to grab some coffee. And we went to a local coffee shop, sat down, you know, we're shooting the breeze because I had never actually met him before in person. And he ended up showing me this incredible book project uh, that he embarked upon and which is going to be released later this month. The book is called Brink. And it's notable because David moved to Washington, D.C. right before uh, the Trump presidency. And he told me in an interview that we're going to publish on our blog on Wednesday morning, which you can find at blog.photoshelter.com, he told me that he thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And, you know, he joked with his friends that, oh, if if Trump wins, I'll move to D.C. and, uh, you know, to cover like the the apocalypse. Yikes. And, uh, yeah, Trump ended up winning. He covered politics from so many different angles, not only politics, but sort of culture and society around that Washington, D.C. area. He took a photo in 2018 of Jeff Flake at a judiciary meeting, a big discussion um, before the hearings of Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. And it was something that I wrote about three years ago because I was like, this photo is amazing. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And but looking at at the book now, um, the images that he has at the White House, in Congress, in different congressional meetings, and then in these outlying communities, and finally on January sixth on the big the insurrection, are just amazing, 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 amazing stuff. And it really was that day, January sixth, that sort of catalyzed for him this thought that all of the images that he had taken during that time needed to be condensed down into book format, not as sort of a, a vanity exercise like many photographers do, you know, but really because it was a document of history. Mm. And I think a lot of photojournalists felt the same way about it. It's just that David had such an incredible body of work, I think in part because he was freelance and he was mm-hmm. able to have a little bit more latitude around what he wanted to be shooting during his time in, in D.C., I really like that the insurrection you know, made him pause to be like, yeah. I need to make a book out of this. And I, I mean, you know, for him to be like, I need to make sense of what just happened and everything that he documented. Um, so I really look forward to seeing this book. Yeah, it's funny. I think for a lot of photographers or even creative people in general, when you embark on these long term projects, they're simultaneously cathartic. And they also drive you insane right, yeah. because it becomes obsessive <laughs> to kind of like, you know, to, to, to make sure the output of it is, is quote, perfect. Mm, um, mm-hmm. In speaking with Jim Richardson last week, one of the things that stuck in my mind for really the entire week, we were talking about the Environmental Photographer of the Year contest. And Jim and I have had a years long conversation about photo contests. And one of his observations is that, you know, the types of photos that win contests tend to be these splashy spot news, very graphic, kind of really on the nose type images that don't necessarily have a, you know, a billion layers to peel back before you can understand what you're looking at. And he said, that's not always great because 
those are not necessarily the best photos to tell a story. And the example that he gave last week was, you know, one of the biggest climate change impactors is refrigerant material that are used in air conditioning and HVAC systems. And he said, when's the last time you saw a photo of an air conditioner win a photo contest? Hmm. Right. And I was like, oh, that's that's very prescient, Jim. Yeah. And so I asked uh, David similarly about this image that I came across in the book. There's a couple sitting in a motel room, which upon first glance, I think I don't think it's going to be winning any contests. But when you really analyze this photo, there's so many incredible layers to it. What was your reaction looking at that photo? Oh, it's uh, it's stunning, first of all. Just like all of the content within it, it it's layer upon layer upon layer. Um, it's two pretty weathered people. They're on a bed. They're holding hands. It's an interracial couple, a white woman and a black man. And there's an American flag hanging over one of them and a Confederate flag hanging over the other. And looking at it only brings up questions rather than any answers of just like, who is this couple? What's going on? Where are they? You know? And, and it's like, to what you said, you know, that's, that's not an, it's not an easy read, right? When you look at it, you need to, you need to know more. You need to talk to the photographer and the subjects. Yeah. And the way that he described to me in this interview that we're going to publish on a Wednesday, you know, he says they're watching television after a daytime nap. There were things about them that so defied stereotypes, you know, and he's talking about this Confederate flag that he said was placed there by the African-American man. And he really talks about this sense of despair uh, and discontent that a lot of people felt around the country, which is why, you know, the, so many people came out to vote for Trump. And I think you really get that sense in looking at these photos. So you can go to davidbuteau.com, hit the link for Brink, order the book. You'll get it uh, later this month. It looks fantastic. I'm going to put my order in. I think this is going to be a real historical uh, photojournalism book um, that we'll look back in 10, 20, 30 years and say, wow, what an what a incredible moment in time, for better or for worse. CNN had a great interview with photographer Mary Bayridge who is coming out with a new book called Visible Spectrum. And it's a body of work of portraits of people with autism. And the reason that she started this project is because her own son um, is autistic. And in the interview, it explains that the son, quote, displayed signs of autism from birth, including motor skill and speech delays, difficulty with change and sensory sensitivity. Um, It took over seven years for him to be formally diagnosed which is, yeah, a a significant amount of time. And I'm sure the family had a lot of questions. But these portraits um, are just, they're quiet, they're beautiful. Um, The lighting, she I mean, she has a great eye for light. The placement of everybody within the environments just makes sense. She talks about how, you know, because autistic people are very sensitive to their environment, she asked them, where do you want to be placed? Where do you feel comfortable? Um, and that led her to various spots. What did you think of the work, Alan? I, I loved it. You know, these are, it's a portrait book in a lot of ways, right? It's not, yeah. it's not trying to be a documentary book. It's a portrait book with these people in the settings. I think it's, it's sort of fascinating dealing with uh, people on the spectrum as your photo subject, because in a sense, they're going to tell you what they think without couching it any any language yeah, yeah and when i think of 
photographers like Drew Gurian, who we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, dealing with celebrities. Mm. It's it, it's there's some similarities in terms of you know, you can be a real belligerent celebrity and <laughs> almost be like, uh, no, I don't want to go over there. Right. And be, be very blunt <laughs> in the exchange. Um, so I can see how this might actually help her with her with her normal portraiture. Um, but the photos immediately reminded me of Timothy Archibald's uh, photographic project from 2010 called Echolilia. Oh, of his son. Yeah. And in he, his son, Eli, he worked on that book for several years. And I think it was this, another case where, you know, his son was diagnosed with autism. He started photographing the son uh, as therapy for himself, right? Because dealing with an autistic child can be very, very frustrating at times. And I thought it would be I thought it would be actually good to sort of compare the two projects, not because I think it's like, oh, this project is better than the other, but Barrage takes more of a survey approach in terms of trying to take f- portraits of multiple uh, people that have, uh, you know, the spectrum disorder, autism. And I would dare say that each image feels like a standalone image. Whereas because Archibald is only taking photos of his son, Eli, the work to me ends up feeling more obviously longitudinal, more of a narrative arc, more intimate in some ways. Um, And, you know, he has images of not just his son, but of like a Band-Aid, for example, or a letter that supports Mm. the the overall narrative that he's trying to get across in the book. So, I, I mean, they're both fantastic stuff. I just have, I just remember the Archibald, work from a decade ago. Oh gosh. I mean, so yeah, that was, I feel like that was like all over the photo blogs when that came out. Like it just had the amount of press it got was a lot. And there's some images in that series that really I I have stuck in my brain um, and that I really love. I love that both of these photographers went into this personal project from their own family and that kind of gateway into the work. Um, shows in the work in that, you know, this is something very near and dear to their heart. Um, And both sets of series, I think, documents autism in a very sensitive and loving way. Um, And I and I love both the series. Yeah. Berridge worked on her project for five years, more than five years. Um, Mm. And I think it matters that you know, something near and dear to her heart because it's awfully difficult to maintain interest in something for that long mm-hmm. um, and continue to output quality, quality work. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out this little trivia that you found, which is that Mary got her MFA from Yale University. Of course, yes, a school that I'm familiar with. Yes, of course you're going to mention it. Okay, okay. But after, after you, you know, you found that little nugget in her bio, it it all, it made more sense to me because mm. there are there's sort of a history of portraiture coming out of that Yale MFA program. Uh, yeah. You know, we talk about Gregory Crudson, we talk about David Hilliard. We, I mean, there's so many people that that teach or have come out of that program that excel in portraiture, and so in that context, it makes sense to me that she took a very portrait uh, oriented approach to her book. Absolutely. And I just want to point out one of her past series that I just absolutely love. And it's A Positive Life, Portraits of Women Living with HIV. Also an amazing series and bodies of body of work that's all about portraits. Check out her whole website. 
Yeah, lovely photos uh, shot on film, square format. You know, it looks like six by seven or maybe six by six. Just great stuff. The book is called Visible Spectrum, and it's available for purchase now. So go look it up. Mary Berridge. I have an ongoing text with Martin Gisborne. Many of you know Martin because he worked a long time at Apple. Uh, he is now a fantastic astrophotographer. And so we talk a lot about astrophotography because I love the wide field stuff, and he's been doing a lot of stuff with telescopes. But he sent me a tweet by the Japanese billionaire and space tourist Yusaku Maezawa, who paid to go to the International Space Station. And while he was there, he was tweeting images that he took with his iPhone from the <laughs> ISS. Before Whoa. I even talk about the image, his Twitter handle is amazing. Now, remember, his first name is Japanese. It's Yusaku. And his okay. handle is Yusuk Maezawa, which I think a lot of people looking at a billionaire <laughs> who paid to go to space, like, you suck. So it's a bit, you know, self-deprecating. I can, I can, you know, understand and appreciate that humor. The first photo that he posted from his iPhone is as he was about to dock with the ISS. And he says, I saw this amazing view from the window of the Soyuz right next to my seat. I couldn't help but say, wow. And I straight away took out my iPhone to take this photo. Oh, my God. I mean, you see the Earth and you see the space station and you can't believe that someone took it with an iPhone. Ah, that is unbelievable. I also just can't believe that the word space tourist exists. I know. I know. <laughs> He's trying to become the first civilian to actually go around the moon in 2023. I don't know if that's going to work out, you know, given oh, all wow. of the technology needed for that. But uh, it's cool. And so I saw this photo and I joked back to Martin. I said, well, I can't, can't wait to see who's going to do the first hyperlapse. <laughs> and then the next day, Martin sends me the next tweet from Yusaku, which was not a hyperlapse, but a time lapse. But it's a time lapse of Earth from the ISS window. And it says, quote, this is exactly an entire orbit around Earth. Breathtaking. Wow. wow. Now, listen, you can look at this thing and be like, well, but there's lens flare. And what I'll say is. Yo, he's traveling around the earth and the sun's in the image. So, yes, there's going to be lens flare. And we know the iPhone has a very particular lens flare. It's still an amazing, amazing sequence. And I can't believe someone took it with a camera phone. That's what I, I'm watching it. And I'm just like, how is this real? Like, it almost looks like CGI. Yeah. But it's not. Unbelievable. The last thing that I watch is, you know, he's been posting to YouTube as well. And he explains in Japanese with uh, captions how they use the bathroom on the ISS. And, you know, I've had a passing interest in space for a long time. And I know, you know, the suits, the space suits have a little collector thing to collect urine and blah, blah, blah. I've never seen such a specific and illustrated example of how they use the toilets, because obviously in zero gravity, you need suction. And so he shows the little thing where you urinate into it's it looks like a vacuum tube oh my god right? oh my god and yeah. then he's got like a little toilet that looks like a miniature uh uh trash can that also has suction and a plastic bag mm. um and he has this very candid discussion about pooping and peeing which i think most americans <laughs> would just think is hilarious but you know americans for whatever reason have always get nervous when they talk about like bodily function and it's yeah. not the case when you go to East Asia. <laughs> um, and so he just, it's a very matter of fact conversation. And, you know, the guy who's interviewing him never cracks 
uh, a laugh or anything, and neither does he, and you should watch it. We'll have a link on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. But I just thought the footage was amazing. Yeah, the the footage is amazing. And look, I appreciate his self-deprecating humor. (laughs) I appreciate him telling us about the toilets. I mean, we weren't getting any of that content from Bezos or Elon. So No, we were not. We really weren't. So he's in the he's winning. (laughs) In 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 terms of billionaires going to space, uh, you know, and creating a very large carbon footprint, he's definitely winning uh, for the content creation. (laughs) Uh, But you know, time will tell. Maybe uh, maybe Times Man of the Year Elon Musk will surprise us on his next journey to space. Getty Images is going public. Now, this is not the first time that Getty Images will be going public, but it hasn't been public for the past like 10 years. Um, It has been valued at $4.8 billion. And Alan, you wrote a very complicated note after that. Can you explain? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm not a finance guru, but clearly the valuation of a company is based on its current earnings, Mm -hmm. some multiple based on how agile you know, investors think uh, the company can be and what the upside of that investment is. Uh, so the enterprise value is $4.8 billion, representing a multiple of approximately 15.2 times the enterprise value of the 2022 adjusted EBITDA, earnings before income, tax depreciation, amortization, for those of you who studied any economics. Ooh. The EBITDA is $315 million. So it's 15x against that 315 million. Okay. And quite honestly, that I'm a little surprised at the multiple, to be honest. That's more money than I would think it would be worth. But again, I'm not, you know, I'm not a finance dude and I didn't read anything specific in the prospectus. So maybe they know something I don't. (laughs) I mean, maybe they do. So Getty will be acquired by CC Nuremberg. Principal Holdings 2, which is a publicly traded special purpose acquisition company. It's basically, that's called a, an SPAC. SPAC, yeah. we call it a SPAC. Oh, a SPAC. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you, Alan. All right. It, the SPAC, which is a company that has no commercial operations and is formed strictly to raise capital through an initial public offering. The SPACs have been very popular with a lot of these upstart electric vehicle companies. Oh. Um, and there's been a lot of questions around... Uh, the viability of these companies because they're mm-hmm. basically short-circuiting all of the supposed uh, uh, controls that you would normally go through for an IPO mm. uh, by having these blank check companies. And a lot of the SPACs have kind of famously fizzled out and died. So huh. who knows? Okay, Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I also learned during this news that Getty is like in extreme debt, which I don't yeah. I could have, I guess I could have assumed that, but I just didn't. Um, they're going to use some of this money, about $576 million will go towards paying off of that debt. And also their revenue has been steadily declining since 2018, maybe even before that. For example, in 2018, their revenue was at $868 million, and in 2020, it was $814 million. So it's, it's going, going down. <laughs> So you found a tweet from Todd Bigelow, who we know as uh, both a photographer and an author who wrote the the latest kind of Bible of business practices. Um, and we've talked to Todd, and he's been a friend of Photo Shelter for a long time. Uh, why, why don't you take us through some of his observations that he tweeted about? 
Yeah, so he's kind of like predicting, and he tweeted this on December 10th, he's kind of predicting that them going public, number one, that a further erosion of fees to spur even higher volume of sales will occur. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a higher percentage of each license taken by Getty yep. from photographers. And number three, steady increases in their subscription pricing, which is already a lot. Like, And it's hard to convince your higher-ups. Like, We need to put more money towards the image subscription and they'll be like, why? And you'll be like, well, because the only photo of like Jennifer Aniston or whoever I need has been the same one in our bucket forever. And I need more options of her. Right. Right. <laughs> it's hard to convince. So that I, that'll be interesting to see if those prices go even more up. He also says publicly traded companies are beholden first and foremost to profit margins, which is absolutely true. And, you know, talking about, Photographers getting less commission on sales and less rights and less benefit. I, you know, I don't think it's even necessarily a function of Getty going public again, because when it comes to photography, the content platforms always have made all the money. When you start getting into video, right, that's when content producers start making money. And if you look at the content slash influencer class on any social media platform, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, those are people who can amass millions of followers and have, quote, influence. And therefore, these different platforms are, in many cases, vying to outbid the competitors to get them to to exclusively be on the platform. For better or for worse, that's sort of the reality. Video content is stickier than photography. Still content is largely taken for granted. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, like if all you deal with is photography, it's I can't see a world in which it gets any better than it has been. I think it's just gonna continue to decline and you know, get it going public and you'll see some of these dynamics that Ta talked about. Unfortunately, that's gonna be the reality. If you had had the Instagram handle at meta or at Metaverse, right when Facebook announced their rebranding to Meta, what would you think would happen? (laughs) (laughs) You might think, oh, I'm sitting on some gold. Well, artist Taya Maya Bowman did have the username on Instagram, at Metaverse, which she had originally signed up for and with in 2012. That's astonishing. Yeah, a long time. She had used used this account to promote her augmented reality company called Metaverse Makeovers. And a few days before the official announcement, she started getting DMs from strangers, like as the news was leaking, offering to buy her handle. And some strangers just being like, like Facebook is going to take this account, like watch out kind of thing. Yeah. And then on November 2nd, which was like about four days after the official announcement, she tried to log on and was warned by Instagram, you know, the classic quote, your account has been blocked for pretending to be someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the New York Times tries to spin this as Facebook taking her account, but I'm not so sure that that's exactly what happened. Facebook never confirmed nor denied it. But, you know, we're told that there were a lot of eyeballs already on her account from strangers. So my thought is, like, what if somebody else had kind of, like, reported it, you know, and been like, this is my account. And uh, she, that's what I think yeah. probably went down. Um, 
But I think this story is just kind of a good reminder. She ended up getting her account back, just FYI. But I do think that this story is a good reminder, you know, that social media you do not own your account um, and it should it's not your business's best friend as much as it might help your business and should not be the only way that you keep, you know, your photos archived or presented to clients, et cetera. You're so beholden to the terms and conditions of these social media platforms. This love-hate relationship, you know, we all joke about, oh, the love-hate relationship we have with uh, social media accounts. I think it's Getting to the point where people are really getting fed up. Yeah. Right? You know, in this case, who knows exactly what happened, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if Meta decided they were going to take that away and lawyered up and forced her to take a settlement. You know, you can definitely see that happening. And all I will say mm. is she must be from the future to know to sign up for the Instagram handle, handle Metaverse. <laughs> Finally, today, I was going through my Facebook feed, speaking about Facebook, but this is actually a, a great story. Uh, Elizabeth Christ, who many of you know as a longtime National Geographic editor, had a stint editing for The New Yorker. And she posted uh, from the November 24th through 30th uh, issue the column called Goings On About Town. And in that, they selected a photo taken by the landscape photographer team of Diane Cook and Len Genschel of a woman about to cross the border of shadow and light at the Bryant Park rink. As someone who used to work in Bryant Park and as mm. someone who is just so familiar with this part of town, it's just such a lovely, lovely photo. It really is. You've got the New York uh, Public Library in the background, that classic, classic architecture. So there, it gives that little bit of like New York old feel. The buildings around it aren't towering it. They're not too high. The motion that she is making with her body as she ice skates right into the shadow, it's almost like a clock kind of yeah. reminds me of a clock for some reason. There's just a lot of good elements and it's it just rings New York. The sun is still relatively low in the sky. You know, the sun is rising because we know we're facing east. And you also see, you know, one of the observations I've made about all these mirrored buildings in New York, which some people love and some people hate. The thing I love about them is that they reflect light back into spaces that were otherwise dark. Mm. And so you get reflections off of the library there's two kind of hot spots if you will on the two upper corners of the library that are coming off one of the other buildings um and it just gives a sense of like a glowing morning and this woman is skating by herself with her backpack on and it just looks so it just looks so lovely i don't know how else to it, describe it yeah it looks peaceful to me yeah we checked out the work of diane cook and len gential um landscape photographers Lovely, lovely stuff. Going back years and years and years into the film era. Oh, yeah. Wonderful work. Yeah, they have some great documentations of New York um, as well. So definitely check them out. Great to have you back again, Sarah. Yeah. We're going to see you again next week or I hear from you again next week. Good. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. While you're here, why don't you hit that subscribe button? You can always leave us a comment and a rating. It helps us reach more and more people with this podcast. You can always tweet at us at Photo Shelter. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Photo Shelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. 
Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.